Chapter Fourteen C of The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Fourteen C At Cleveland, Personal Descriptions of Mr. and Mrs. Lincoln. At New York City, Impressions of the New President. Perils of the Journey. The Baltimore Plot. Change of Route. Arrival at the Capitol. This statesmanlike expression of conservative opinion, continues Mr. Smith, alarmed some of the Republicans who feared that the new President might sell out his party, and steps were taken later in the day to remind him of certain principles deemed fundamental by those who had been attracted to the party of freedom. The sequel will show how this was done, and how successfully Mr. Lincoln met the unexpected attack. In the evening I called, with other citizens, at Mr. Lincoln's rooms at the Burnett House, to pay my respects. Mr. Lincoln had put off the melancholy mood that appeared to control him during the day, and was entertaining those present with genial, even lively, conversation. The pleasant entertainment was interrupted by the announcement that a delegation of German workingmen were about to serenade Mr. Lincoln. Proceeding to the balcony, there were seen the faces of nearly two thousand of the substantial German citizens who had voted for Mr. Lincoln because they believed him to be a stout champion of free labor and free homesteads. The remarks of their spokesman, Frederick Oberkline, set forth in clear terms what they expected. He said, We, the German free working men of Cincinnati, avail ourselves of this opportunity to assure you, our chosen chief magistrate, of our sincere and heartfelt regard. You earned our votes as the champion of free labor and free homesteads. Our vanquished opponents have in recent times made frequent use of the terms workingmen and workingmen's meetings, in order to create an impression that the mass of workingmen were in favor of compromises between the interests of free labor and slave labor, by which the victory just won would be turned into a defeat. This is a despicable device of dishonest men. We spurn such compromises. We firmly adhere to the principles which directed our votes in your favor. We trust that you, the self-reliant because self-made man, will uphold the Constitution and the laws against secret treachery and avowed treason. If to this end you should be in need of men, the German free working men, with others, will rise as one man at your call ready to risk their lives in the effort to maintain the victory already won by freedom over slavery. This was bringing the rugged issue boldly to the front, and challenging the President-elect to meet the issue or risk the loss of the support of an important section of his own party. Oberkline spoke with great effect, but the remarks were hardly his own. Some abler man had put into his mouth these significant words. Mr. Lincoln replied, very deliberately, but without hesitation, as follows. Mr. Chairman, I thank you and those you represent for the compliment paid me by the tender of this address. In so far as there is an allusion to our present national difficulty, and the suggestion of the views of the gentlemen who present this address, I beg you will excuse me from entering particularly upon it. I deem it due to myself and the whole country, in the present extraordinary condition of the country and of public opinion, 
that I should wait and see the last development of public opinion before I give my views or express myself at the time of the inauguration. I hope at that time to be false to nothing you have been taught to expect of me. Cheers. I agree with you, Mr. Chairman, and with the address of your constituents, in the declaration that working men are the basis of all governments. That remark is due to them more than to any other class, for the reason that there are more of them than of any other class. And as your address is presented to me not only on behalf of working men, but especially of Germans, I may say a word as to classes. I hold that the value of life is to improve one's condition. Whatever is calculated to advance the condition of the honest, struggling, laboring man, so far as my judgment will enable me to judge of a correct thing, I am for that thing. An allusion has been made to the homestead law. I think it worthy of consideration, and that the wild lands of the country should be distributed so that every man should have the means and opportunity of benefiting his condition. Cheers. I have said that I do not desire to enter into details, nor will I. In regard to Germans and foreigners, I esteem foreigners no better than any other people, nor any worse. Laughter and cheers. They are all of the great family of men, and if there is one shackle upon any of them it would be far better to lift the load from them than to pile additional loads upon them. Cheers. And inasmuch as the continent of America is comparatively a new country, and the other countries of the world are old countries, there is more room here, comparatively speaking, than there is elsewhere. And if they can better their condition by leaving their old homes, there is nothing in my heart to forbid them coming. And I bid them all Godspeed. Cheers. Again, gentlemen, thanking you for your address, I bid you good night. If any one, says Mr. Smith, had expected to trap Mr. Lincoln into imprudent utterances or the indulgence of the rhetoric of a demagogue, this admirable reply showed how completely they were disappointed. The preservation of this speech is due to my accidental presence. The visitation of the Germans was not on the program, and none of the representatives of the press charged with the duty of reporting the events of the day were present. Observing this, I took shorthand notes on the envelope of an old letter loaned me for the occasion, and afterwards wrote them out. The words of Mr. Lincoln, exactly as spoken, are given above. At Cleveland the party remained over for a day, and Lincoln was greeted with the usual friendly enthusiasm. An immense crowd met him at the depot, and he was escorted to the Weddell House, where a reception was given him in the evening. Honorable A. G. Riddle, then a resident of Cleveland, and a newly elected member of the Congress which was to share with Lincoln the burdens and responsibilities of the Civil War, was present on that occasion and furnishes the following interesting personal recollections of it. I saw Abraham Lincoln for the first time at the Weddell House that evening. He stood on the landing-place at the top of a broad stairway, and the crowd approached him from below. This gave him an exaggerated advantage of his six feet four inches of length. The shapelessness of the lathy form, the shock of coarse black hair surmounting the large head, the retreating forehead, these were not apparent where we stood. My heart sprang up to him, the coming man. 
Of the thousand times I afterwards saw him, the first view remains the most distinct impression. And never again, to me, was he more imposing. As we approached, someone whispered of me to him. He took my hand in both his for an instant, and we wheeled into the already crowded rooms. His manner was strongly western, his speech and pronunciation southwestern. Wholly without self-consciousness with men, he was constrained and ill at ease when surrounded, as he several times was, by fashionably dressed ladies. One incident of the evening I particularly recall. Ab McElrath was in the crowd a handsome giant, an Apollo in youth, of about Mr. Lincoln's height. What brought it about I do not know, but I saw them standing back to back, in a contest of altitude, Mr. Lincoln and Ab McElrath, the President-elect, the Chosen, the nation's leader, in the thick coming darkness, and the tavern-keeper and fox-hunter. The crowd applauded. Mr. Lincoln presented me to the gentlemen of his party, Mr. Browning, Mr. Judd, and Mr. Lamon, I remember, as I later became very well acquainted with them. Also the rough-looking Colonel Sumner of the Army. Mr. Lincoln invited me to accompany him for at least a day on his eastward journey. I joined him the next morning at the station. The vivacity of the night before had utterly vanished, and the rudely sculptured cliffy face struck me as one of the saddest I had ever seen. The eyes especially had a depth of melancholy which I had never seen in human eyes before. Some things he wished to know from me, especially regarding Mr. Chase, whom among others he had called to Springfield. He asked me no direct questions, but I very soon found myself speaking freely to him, and was able to explain some not well-known features of Ohio politics, and much to his satisfaction as he let me see. There was then some talk of Mr. Seward and more of Senator Cameron. All three had been his rivals at Chicago, and were, as I then thought, in his mind as possible cabinet ministers, although no word was said by him of such an idea in reference to either. Presently he conducted me to Mrs. Lincoln, whom I had not before seen. Presenting me, he returned to the gentlemen of the party, and I saw little more of him except once when he returned to us, before I left the train. Mrs. Lincoln impressed me very favorably, as a woman of spirit, intelligence, and decided opinions, which she put very clearly. Her conversation was mainly of her husband. I remarked that all the likenesses I had ever seen of him did him injustice. This evidently pleased her. I suggested that a full beard from the under-lip down—his face was shaven—would relieve and help him very much. This interested her, and we discussed it and the character of his face quite fully. The impression I then formed of this most unfortunate lady was only deepened by the pleasant acquaintance she permitted, down to the time of the national calamity, which unsettled her mind as I always thought. Of the New York City visit, an excellent account is given by the distinguished preacher and writer Dr. S. Irenaeus Prime. The country was at that moment, says Dr. Prime, in the first throes of the Great Rebellion. Millions of hearts were beating anxiously in view of the advent to power of this untried man. Had he been called of God to the throne of power at such a time as this, to be the leader and deliverer of the people? As the carriage in which he sat passed slowly by me on the Fifth Avenue, he was looking weary, sad, feeble, and faint. My disappointment was excessive, so great, indeed, as to be almost overwhelming, 
He did not look to me to be the man for the hour. The next day I was with him and others in the governor's room in the city hall, when the mayor of the city made an official address. Mr. Lincoln's reply was so modest, firm, patriotic, and pertinent, that my fears of the day before began to subside, and I saw in this new man a promise of great things to come. It was not boldness or dash or high-sounding pledges, nor did he while in office with the mighty armies of a roused nation at his command ever assumed to be more than he promised in that little upper chamber in New York, on his journey to the seat of government, to take the helm of the ship of state, then tossing in the storm. Before the end of the journey strong fears prevailed in the minds of Lincoln's friends that an attempt would be made to assassinate him before he should reach Washington. Every precaution was taken to thwart such endeavor, although Lincoln himself was disturbed by no thought of danger. He had done, he contemplated doing, no wrong, no injustice to any citizen of the United States. Why then should there be a desire to strike him down? Thus he reasoned, and he was free from any dread of personal peril. But the officials of the railroads over which he was to pass, and his friends in Washington, felt that there was cause for apprehension. It was believed by them that a plot existed for making away with Lincoln while passing through Baltimore, a city in the heart of a slave state and rife with the spirit of rebellion. Detectives have been employed to discover the facts in the matter, and their reports served to confirm the most alarming conjectures. A messenger was dispatched from Washington to intercept the presidential party, and warn Lincoln of the impending danger. Dr. Holland states that the detective and Mr. Lincoln reached Philadelphia nearly at the same time, and there the former submitted to a few of the president's friends the information he had secured. An interview between Mr. Lincoln and the detective was immediately arranged, and took place in the apartments of the former at the Continental Hotel. Mr. Lincoln, having heard the officer's statement in detail, then informed him that he had promised to raise the American flag on Independence Hall the following morning, the anniversary of Washington's birthday, and that he had accepted an invitation to a reception by the Pennsylvania Legislature in the afternoon of the same day. Both of these engagements I will keep, said Mr. Lincoln, if it costs me my life. For the rest he authorized the detective to make such arrangements as he thought proper for his safe conduct to Washington. In the meantime, according to Dr. Holland, General Scott and Senator Seward, both of whom were in Washington, learned from independent sources that Lincoln's life was in danger, and concurred in sending Mr. Frederick W. Seward to Philadelphia to urge upon him the necessity of proceeding immediately to Washington in a quiet way. The messenger arrived late on Thursday night, after Lincoln had retired, and requested an audience. Lincoln's fears had already been aroused, and he was cautious, of course, in the matter of receiving a stranger. But satisfied that the messenger was indeed the son of Mr. Seward, he received him. Nothing needed to be done except to inform him of the plan entered into with the detective by which the President was to arrive in Washington early on Saturday morning, in advance of his family and party. On the morning of the 22nd, Lincoln, as he had promised, attended the flag-raising at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the historic building in which had been adopted the Declaration of Independence. The occasion was a memorable one, and Lincoln's address eloquent and impressive. All the political sentiments I entertain, said he, 
have been drawn from the sentiments which were given to the world from this hall." He spoke calmly, but firmly, of his resolve to stand by the principles of the immortal Declaration and of the Constitution of his country. And, as though conscious of the dangers of his position, he added solemnly, I have said nothing but what I am willing to live by, and, if it be the pleasure of Almighty God, to die by. From Philadelphia Lincoln went immediately to Harrisburg, and attended the reception given him by the Pennsylvania Legislature, in the afternoon of the same day. Then, leaving his hotel in the evening, attended only by Mr. Lamon and the detective, Mr. Allen Pinkerton, he was driven to the depot, where he took the regular train for Washington. The train passed through Baltimore in the night, and early the next morning, February 23rd, reached the capital. Mr. Washburn, who had been notified to be at the depot on the arrival of the train, says, I planted myself behind one of the great pillars in the old Washington and Baltimore depot, where I could see and not be observed. Presently the train came rumbling in on time. When it came to a stop, I watched with fear and trembling to see the passengers descend. I saw every car emptied, and there was no Mr. Lincoln. I was well nigh in despair and when about to leave I saw three persons slowly emerge from the last sleeping-car. I could not mistake the long, lank form of Mr. Lincoln, and my heart bounded with joy and gratitude. He had on a soft, low-crowned hat, a muffler around his neck, and a short overcoat. Any one who knew him at that time could not have failed to recognize him at once, but I must confess he looked more like a well-to-do farmer from one of the back towns of Joe Davies County coming to Washington to see the city, take out his land warrant and get the patent for his farm, then the President of the United States. The only persons that accompanied Mr. Lincoln were Pinkerton, the well-known detective, and Ward H. Lamon. When they were fairly on the platform and a short distance from the car, I stepped forward and accosted the President. "'How are you, Lincoln?' At this unexpected and rather familiar salutation the gentlemen were apparently somewhat startled. But Mr. Lincoln, who had recognized me, relieved them at once by remarking in his peculiar voice, "'This is only Washburn.' Then we all exchanged congratulations, and walked out to the front of the depot, where I had a carriage in waiting. Entering the carriage, all four of us, we drove rapidly to Willard's Hotel, entering on Fourteenth Street, before it was fairly daylight. General Stone, who was in command at Washington, at that time, states that both General Scott and himself considered it almost a certainty that Mr. Lincoln could not pass through Baltimore alive on the day fixed, and adds, I recommended that Mr. Lincoln should be officially warned, and suggested that it would be best that he should take the train that evening from Philadelphia, and so reach Washington early the next day. General Scott directed me to see Mr. Seward, to whom he wrote a few lines which he handed me. I did not succeed in finding Mr. Seward until past noon. I handed him the General's note. He listened attentively to what I said, and asked me to write down my information and suggestions. Then, taking the paper I had written, he hastily left. The note I wrote was what Mr. Frederick Seward carried to Mr. Lincoln in Philadelphia. Mr. Lincoln has stated that it was this note which induced him to change his journey as he did. The stories of disguises are all nonsense. Mr. Lincoln merely took the sleeping-car in the night train. 
There is little doubt that the fears of Lincoln's friends regarding his passage through Baltimore were well grounded, and that but for the timely warnings and precautions the assassination of April 1865 might have taken place in February of 1861. End of chapter 14c. Recording by Bill Borst.